Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we have a special guest. We have Thomas J. Ord. And Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and an author, and a scholar of multidisciplinary studies. And we're going to talk today about his book, God Can't. And I got to know, well, I guess I became more aware of your work when you came out with the book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. And in the, it's kind of a funny story, actually. I, I just was reading it, and then I saw on your Facebook post, or you posted about having like a Facebook discussion thing, and I kind of misunderstood and thought that you were just going to be lecturing and like kind of, kind of like a Facebook Live thing. So I popped in there, and I'm like, oh, oh, we're, we're doing like a group chat thing. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not just a, a Facebook in the crowd anymore i am gonna have to participate so uh, good <laughs> yeah that was a lot of fun it's a good crowd yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun so anyway other than those basic things uh what do you want to tell us about yourself well uh, how about if i tell you something that's sort of at the core of who i am even better more than anything else in my life i want to live a life of love that motivates me um Every day, practically, I, I get up in the morning and I try to center myself around those kinds of issues. And not that I'm perfect at it, obviously, but uh, that kind of is the way I try to orient my life. And in a very direct way is the inspiration or the source of me deciding to write this book, God Can't. All right, wonderful. And as you can tell from the title, God Can't, we'll obviously get into that more. But on this podcast, we, I mean, this is an LDS podcast, but we go fairly nerdy into theology and philosophy and such, so we can get a little nerdy if we need to. You kind of have inspired me when I read The Uncontrolling Love of God. I love the prose that you use, I guess, just kind of taking complex philosophical issues and breaking it down in a way that the average person can at least get the basic grasp of it, because, you know, a lot of people... They hear all the philosophical jargon. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I stick to the simple stuff. These ideas are obviously important. And, and if you love God, then you should think about him, love him with all your mind, as well as your heart and might and such. Yeah. That's kind of the goal here. So also on the podcast, we've been talking about the problem of evil and going over various theodicies that are possible within Mormonism. And I know you kind of saw I posted to your uncontrolling love of God Facebook page, a possible Mormon process theodicy, which is somewhat similar to your view. Yes. Anyway, so the listeners should be fairly familiar with the general idea of like process theodicy and that type of idea, but this book, God Can't. In the book you say, I wrote this book for victims of evil, survivors, and those who endure senseless suffering. I wrote it for the wounded and unbroken, who have trouble believing in God, are confused, or have given up on faith altogether. I am writing for those who, like me, are damaged in body, mind, and soul. And you go on to say, you know, it's also not just for victims and survivors of things like that, but just anybody who's been wronged, anybody who's had something bad happen to them. You don't have to have something grand happen to kind of feel betrayed by God if you believe in God in a certain way, meaning generally people think that God can pretty much do anything, and if that's the case, as like I said, we've talked about on this podcast, then what does that mean, and how is he justified in not stopping evil? And so, as you say in your title of your book, God can't, and we're going to talk about that idea. So having said that, the first section of your book that I wanted to kind of talk about is the section you titled, My Friends Are Hurting, and, and in this you tell a lot of stories. That's one thing I really loved about the book, is all the stories, and Though you say, you know, I've changed some names, stories are powerful because that's how, you know, humans talk about, you know, that's how we relate to each other and such. Anyway, you give a lot of stories about different people that have gone through hardships and then the various ways that people traditionally answer those questions and why they're maybe not as helpful. And I just wonder if you could maybe give kind of a couple examples, it doesn't have to be exactly from the book, sure. but 
Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned the previous book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, and I, I appreciate the kind words you said about that book. But a couple of things that that book did, one was that many people read it and sent me notes, <laughs> sent me emails, Facebook messages, etc., talking about their own difficulties, their own struggles, their own evils or injustice that they have endured. And many of them said that in reading this book and hearing the idea that God's uncontrolling love makes it so that God simply can't prevent genuine evil, they had a renewed faith in God. They no longer thought that God was just sort of sitting on the sidelines doing nothing, or they didn't have to think that God was punishing them or mad at them, or they didn't have to think that somehow the pain and suffering in the world is allowed by God for some greater good, some hidden purpose or divine plan. Those are all the kinds of typical answers people give. And I think folks who've been around the block a few times begin to think carefully about those typical answers and end up finding real holes in them, finding that they're unsatisfying. I take the bold move in this book by making the claim that God simply cannot control not only free will creatures, but other creatures and entities in existence, because God is loving everything. God's self-giving and others-empowering love provides freedom to free will agents, but also agents that we wouldn't necessarily think have full or robust freedom, and even the smallest entities of existence. And I think it's important to think about God not being able to control even at that level, because otherwise you would have to think that this God could use some of those activities or agents or entities in the world to prevent evils at more complex levels. So it's because of the kinds of stories I was sent that I decided I need to write a book that you know, even my mother can understand, <laughs> one that's for the broad public that takes these stories and takes some of the complicated ideas and puts it out in very straightforward, easy-to-understand words. In my opinion, that it's a resounding success on that front. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Corey. I'm not unfamiliar with theology and philosophy, but I'm also I'm not trained in that anyway. I just read about stuff like that, and I found it very refreshing to breeze through the book, but still understand the deep concepts in there. Good, good. I feel good about that. That was my goal. In the beginning of the book, and you kind of laid out some of that there, but you say there's kind of two things that we need to understand before we can go on with the rest of your proposed solution to this problem of suffering and evil. And that is first, that God loves us all, all the time. So, and we're going to get into this more in, in a minute here, but up front, you are well known for your studies or writings about love in general, and so why did you put these two things up front? I wanted to say right at the beginning that I believe God is loving, and by loving I mean that God acts intentionally in response to us and all creation to promote overall well-being, in other words, to do good. Some people, in wrestling with these questions of evil, will say, yep, God's loving, but God's allowing this rape is somehow a loving activity from some weird perspective. In other words, they so define love that it doesn't have anything to do with the kind of love we think we should be expressing. And so I wanted to say right up at the beginning of this book, look, I think God is a God of love, and what God thinks is loving is similar to what we think is loving. And so I'm not going to be doing these mental gymnastics and asking you to, you know, look at things that are obviously evil and say, well, in some weird and strange way, it's loving in God's sight. But I'm also not going to ask the reader to look at evil and say, well, you know, it may seem bad, but it's really not genuinely evil. Genuine evils make the world, all things considered, worse than it might have been. And we all go about our lives believing that genuine evils actually occur. And so instead of taking the route that says, well, 
It may seem evil from our perspective, but really it's good in God's hidden and mysterious plan. I want to say up front to the reader, nope, some things shouldn't have been. They're pointless. They're unnecessary. And let's just call evil, evil. All right, good. And then I guess as we go throughout the rest of this conversation where we're going to talk about your answer in detail, I'd say just keep in mind, in Mormonism at least, I think, like many other traditions, the common answers that people give to the problem of evil are free will and the soul-building theodicy, with a very strong emphasis on soul-building theodicy. So that's where a lot of people are coming from that are listening to this podcast, and so just bear that in mind. You know, And like I said, we've talked about that a bit in past episodes already, so hopefully the people that have been following understand all the issues that go along with both of those. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I like about Mormon theology. It has a a robust tradition of uh, emphasizing free will. And I think that goes part of the way toward giving a a solution to the problem of evil. I think other creatures are involved in the world. Maybe we don't want to say they have full-blown free will, but in my view, God also can't control those. So one way to think of it is saying, I'm taking this notion of freedom that most Mormons will want to affirm, and I'm extending it to all levels of creation. Even if we don't want to say it's full-bloom freedom, it's still some kind of agency or self-organization that even God can't control. All right, so let's dive in. So the crux of the book is what you call five parts to a solution to the problem of evil. And the first one we've talked about a little bit, but it is number one. God can't prevent evil single-handedly. And so, as far as the chapter goes, you lay out the logic of that, and you start by saying, a loving person prevents preventable evil. And so, what is the basics of that area? Yeah, I think some people will say, well, look, God has the power to prevent evil, but for some reason, God chooses not to do so. God won't stop evil, they say. And I want to say, look, we look at the world, and If we see something rotten going on and someone has the real power to prevent that rotten thing from occurring, we think that if that person is truly loving, that person would intervene in some kind of way. And, you know, I think my favorite example is to imagine if Jesus were walking with us and Jesus came upon a situation, let's say, in which uh, a young girl is being raped. And let's say Jesus has the power to step in between the rapist and his victim. Do we think Jesus would just sort of stand there and not prevent this rape if, you know, he had the the power to do so? I don't think so. I think Jesus loves everyone, including and especially victims, and Jesus would step in and prevent that evil if it were possible. And if we really think that Jesus portrays or reveals who God is, why do we think that Jesus wouldn't prevent preventable evil? So for me, it's important to say, uh, to not let God off the hook, as we might say, to not say, look, God could prevent it, but God chooses not to. All right. And then you dive into why this is that God can't prevent evil. And like I said, we've teased it a bit, but to begin with, you say that when you were developing this idea, you kind of came across a few things while reading the Bible that made you think that this was a possible idea, because in the Bible it does say that God can't do some things. So if you wouldn't mind, go over some of the other things that it says in the Bible that God can't do. Yeah, uh, these are things that I think a lot of people just sort of pass right over. You know, uh, the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews say that God can't lie. The book of James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. And the one that I emphasize is when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he says, when we are faithless, God is faithful because God cannot deny himself. And so I sort of play with this notion that there's some things that God simply can't do because to do them, God would have to not be God. It's actually not a novel idea. A lot of theologians in history have said something like this. They've said, you know, God can't make a rock so big, even God can't lift it, or God can't do what's illogical, God can't stop existing, etc. 
But what I'm doing in this book that is original, I think, is to say that God must love, and God's love is always self-giving and others empowering, and therefore uncontrolling. And so I read that passage that says God can't deny himself, and I suggest to the reader that for God to control others would mean for God to deny God's own uncontrolling love, and I don't think God can do that. The next logical step that you also lay out in your chapter is you talk about God's nature and how that leads to this uncontrolling love. You did hint at it already with the scripture passage saying God can't deny himself. So a lot of believers slash theologians will say, well, like for example, on open theism, which we've talked about, a lot of people or a lot of theologians say God is self-limiting, but if he really wanted to, he could unself-limit if it were part of his purposes and then intervene. But you're saying God can't, and that's his nature. That's right. This is kind of the crux of the whole idea, so if you could explain how God's nature is the thing that's limiting what God can and cannot do. I'm an open and relational theist myself, but I have a different view on this than some of my openness friends. Uh, Many of them will want to say, you know, God allows these things. God won't intervene. God permits evil. And to me, that's sort of not being able to solve the real question of the problem of evil, and that's why a loving and powerful God doesn't prevent the genuine evils of the world. The technical way to think about this uh, that I propose actually more in my Uncontrolling Love of God book than I do in this book, but the technical way to think about this is to ask the question, what comes logically first in God's nature? Is it God's power and choice, such that God can choose whether or not to love and choose whether or not to control others? Or is it this uncontrolling love that comes first in God's nature? And if it does come first logically, that means God simply can't control others. And if that's true, then saying things like, you know, God allowed that evil or God permitted that torture That doesn't make any sense because love comes first in God and God doesn't have the power to prevent those horrific things. I guess I skipped this in order, but it comes naturally here too. So you reference in the book that another path that you took to this view is the scriptures that mention that God is love. And so if God is love, and as you said, his nature is love, then I just want to read from the book here what you said, because you asked the question that we're all thinking, well, what is love according to you? And you give a pretty succinct definition. You say, love is purposeful action in relation to God and others that aims to do good. Love advances well-being. It fosters flourishing, abundant life, and blessedness. And to put it formally, to love is to act intentionally in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. So with that definition of love, as being the thing that is the essence of God, I guess that's what you're saying. That comes before any other part of God's nature, and that conditions everything else. Am I understanding that correctly? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd say it this way. It's logically prior to all the other attributes, which basically means that we ought to understand all the other attributes in light of this kind of love. And then we'll return to that at the end. I do have kind of a a question about that aspect, or a few questions, but we'll get to that after we go through the rest of it. So the next aspect that I wanted to ask you about or have you explain is, despite the Mormon view that God has a body, God is not simply a body, but on your view, you take the more traditional view, as is understandable, that God is a bodiless spirit. And I think through a very small amount of explaining, we can come to the same ground saying that at least the way that God is or the Holy Spirit is interacting with all of reality, he's not doing it with a localized body. And so this also plays a role in what is limiting God. And go and explain that if you would, and then I have a question just up front here that we can get out of the way about that. Yeah. So I, I think probably in this book, this might be the only point that could be in conflict with at least some Mormon theology, as, as you've already hinted at. And you're also proposing a way around it by saying, 
look, if it's the spirit that's active in the world and the spirit doesn't have a body, then maybe we can get around it. But my worry has been, and I think the worry of many Christians, is the worry that if God has a body like we do, a, a localized physical body, then God can't be omnipresent. Now, again, I think Mormons have an alternative to that by talking about the spirit in in certain kind of ways, but the light of Christ and that kind of thing. But the problem that kind of emerges in my day-to-day conversations with people when I talk about this is they'll hear me say that, you know, God's love is uncontrolling, and they'll hear me say that, uh, you know, God can't prevent evil, and they'll think about it a little while, and then they'll say to themselves, well, hold on a second. Sometimes I seem to, if not control others, at least constrain them in powerful ways. You know, if my two-year-old is crawling toward a flame, I can pick my two-year-old up against my two-year-old's free will and prevent this horrific evil. And they'll say to me, you know, it sounds to me like we can do something that God can't do. And if it's loving for us to constrain someone's freedom, why can't it be loving for God to do so? And this is where I emphasize in the book this idea that God does not have a localized physical body. God actually doesn't have an arm that can pick us up or pull us out from traffic or carry us from a, you know, a burning building. That, again, might be one point of tension with at least some Mormon theology, but uh, you know Mormon theology better than I do. You might be able to talk about ways in which uh, you could overcome that possible tension. Yeah, I think that's easily overcome. Um, but I did have one question about it, and I tried all my questions. They're not specifically about Mormon theology, just about theology or the idea in general. So I just had a question of if you could explain better, because maybe I'm just misunderstanding, but if it's the lack of a body that is limiting God from, let's say, stopping a child from going into a fire or whatever, I, I mean, I guess there's various ways, but like, you know, somehow taking away things or things like that, then is it his loving nature now that's limiting him? Or why is not this bodiless spirit enough in your view to say, well, God is limited because he can't interact with the physical world. That's what's limiting him. He, he can persuade it but he can't make it happen. Yeah, so I want to say it's both that God is God's nature is uncontrolling love and that God is an omnipresent spirit without a, a localized physical body. And you're asking me, well, why, why go with the nature of uncontrolling love? Why not just have a spirit without a body? And the reason I think we need to have both is that most Christians throughout the ages have thought that God really can control others. Now, they haven't worked out the mechanics of that usually, but uh, they've sort of had this notion that God has that kind of power, while simultaneously, at least some of the more formal theologians, believing that God doesn't have a body, or God is incorporeal or immaterial, to use the usual language. And so I want to head off both possible criticisms to my view by saying, no, you have to have both of these things to make it work. Just one, at least in my view, doesn't do the trick. Okay, no, and that makes sense. I guess, like, even on a Mormon view, I guess people are saying, people generally believe that it's not God's body that's magically doing the intervening that we're thinking of. It's however God is exerting power. And so... Right. And usually, I don't know about most Mormons, but most of the believers I hang around with, they don't have a sophisticated, you know, strategy or mechanism for how God is actually doing things, but they just know that, or at least they just believe that God sometimes does control. Uh, yes, that applies to most Mormons as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and then, you know, that's the basic premise there, and like I said, I'll, we'll go back to that. But that's step number one, and so that is going to logically lead to all, all the rest of these. And so let's talk about each of them, and probably these first two more than the others. And that's kind of what I liked about this book here. Is it's sort of, I, the uncontrolling love of God is great, it's very understandable, but it's more to explain the idea, And whereas this book is more pastoral, and kind of, like you said, is yeah. the goal is to help people heal that have gone through these things, and maybe they're like, you know what? I mean, what kind of a God is letting this happen to me? Like, th- right. this guy is terrible. <laughs> yeah. So the second point of your solution is that God 
feels our pain. So I think Mormons would be very, very agreeing with this. I'm sure most Christians would, well, at least on, on the ground Christians. I know there's classical views where God literally can't be moved by others, but I think the trend, at least from the pulse I'm feeling, is that most people are kind of shifting towards this view that God does feel not just maybe only our pain, but he feels he is passable. Right. I think it's a view that most Christians have held throughout the centuries. It's just some of the formal academic theologians that have wanted to have a God who's unaffected by the world or what we do. And I think that's quite unfortunate. But yeah, I think it's a very common view. I think this view is so common today that even many scholars, when they tackle the problem of evil, their only real answer is that God feels our pain. God suffers with us. And I think that's an important answer, but it doesn't solve the big question at the center of the problem of evil, and that's why doesn't a loving and powerful God prevent the evil in the first place? You know, imagine that you and I are walking through the mall together, and an earthquake hits, and uh, a big beam comes down and crashes on your body, and uh, you're you're just about ready to suffocate because of this huge beam. And and I'm there, and I come upon you, and I see you, and I, I think to myself, well, you know what? I could actually push that beam off of Corey and, and probably save his life. And you look up at me, and you say, could you please help me? And, and I say to myself, you know, I'm just going to be like the God who is just present with us when we suffer. And uh, the God who has the power to prevent this death, but chooses instead just to, you know, be a, a suffering God. Well, that's not, in my view, loving. <laughs> if if I have the power to save your life and choose instead just to kind of hold your hand and say nice things to you as you die, I don't think I'm a loving person. Uh, so as much as I think it's important to say that God is a suffering God, God's affected by our pain, God really feels the difficulties and, and the, um, the the suffering we've gone through. I also think we need to say that God couldn't have prevented it in the first place. Another part in this chapter I really liked was that you talked about various ways that we can feel God's love or the you know, you've kind of picked up on, I imagine this is probably written from your personal experience, but I, it's my experience too in a lot of these. And I just wanted to read a few of them. You kind of give a story of, I think it's a woman who just says like, you know, I, I really am having a hard time feeling this love of God or even his presence or the influence of the spirit or anything like that. And like, well, you know, some people, if you're not in tune with your emotions, a lot may have that same proclivity to not be able to feel God's love, but it's still there. But then you give these really great things that I think are very helpful. So the first one you say is the ministry of human presence. And that is just, you know, the goodness of people that come and visit you. Like if you if you break your leg and someone comes over and brings you cookies and then sits with you for a while and lets you talk to them. I mean, you can feel God in that because they're inspired by the goodness of God to come and do that. <laughs> Yeah. And I also talk a little bit in that section about trained professionals, therapists, counselors, because sometimes it's in those kinds of more intense sessions that people feel God's love. All right. And then next you talk about a community of care. And, you know, that can obviously be like a church community or just like a, a nice neighborhood, the, the feeling of belonging. And that is godly when especially multiple believers are coming together and it kind of a united purpose of saying like, you know, we want to embody God's will and be here. And I agree with that one. <laughs> I guess I agree with them all, but I really like that one. <laughs> good, good. All right, and then next you mentioned mindfulness, meditation, and prayer. And I mean, that's kind of a self-given, but just to kind of center yourself with God. And so, yeah, I think most Christians throughout history have found especially prayer, but maybe mindfulness and meditation are new. So what do you mean by those, I guess, in this context? Yeah, I think some people, when they think about prayer, they think primarily about, you know, petitioning God, asking God to do things. And and I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I've had this sort of laundry list that I have that I keep, and I've got all these things that I want to see happen, and I, and I ask God to do them. In those kinds of scenarios, I'm often not feeling God's presence, because 
I've got a to-do list. <laughs> you know, I want to accomplish things or I want God to accomplish things. But it's in those times in which I'm trying to be attuned to God, to meditate on God's love, to meditate on my life in relation to, to God, to sort of be focused in on God's love for me. At least sometimes in those scenarios, I also feel God's love. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that I feel it all the time, because that's definitely not true. But there have been some profound moments in my life where I felt a deep sense of God's warm and loving presence. Wonderful. And we'll probably breeze a little more quickly through these next three, but they're, they're great. So experiences in nature, and that's definitely up there. In fact, I hear a lot of people sometimes say, like, you know, you know what's way better than church is just going into the mountains. and Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they're right. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, definitely true. <laughs> and then you mentioned the various arts, saying, you know, there's movies and paintings and music. And I think I especially, I'm, I don't know if you know what I do, but I, I'm an art director for an advertising agency, but I'm way into the arts and stuff like that. So I very much associate with that. Cool. And then you mentioned the love of a child. And I, I again, very much agree. I, I have four kids myself, and my youngest are twin boys, and I just look it in their eyes when I come home from work. It's, you know, I feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate. All right, so the next one is that God works to heal. And based on what we discussed in the first section, you know, some people might be surprised to hear, well, so if God can't do things, then how is God working to heal. And I, I like the way that you kind of introduced this with the first section, talking about how generally when people pray for healing, they kind of give like a cover your butt <laughs> phrase, if you will, that, you know, if, if it's thy will, then go ahead and do this, all those things we ask for. But if not, you know, at least that way I can say, oh, it didn't happen because it wasn't his will, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a prayer that I prayed myself at, uh, early in my life trying to be faithful to pray for healing, but also not wanting to raise expectations in people to think that when God doesn't heal, that, you know, in some way God doesn't love them. So just sort of adding this, if it's your will kind of idea. But I quickly found that to be not helpful at all because, um, you know, look, if I'm not, if I'm asking God to do something, if I'm asking God to help somebody out to heal them from cancer, and if I think God's a healing God, then why would I doubt that it's God's will to heal? And so fairly quickly, I set that aside, uh, that little phrase, if it's your will, and begin to think uh, seriously about other ways to try to reconcile why it is that sometimes people are healed, but often, at least in my experience, people are not healed. Often I pray for people and uh, they don't get any better. My my success rate is pretty low. <laughs> yeah, I think most people have that same experience. And so I, I guess if you would just kind of explain how on your view this still works, because, you know, you're praying like, well, if God can't unilaterally heal these people, then what are we hoping for? Just to for God to get lucky, basically? or And how can God's uncontrolling love help heal a person in general, whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be like a direct from a sickness, but just heal from the other things that you mentioned, such as abuse and just hardships in life in general. Yeah. So in my view, God is present to everyone and everything in the entire universe at all times, and God is always loving. And that means that in situations in which there's pain and brokenness, either physical or psychological, spiritual, mental, whatever, God's working to heal to the greatest extent possible. So I'm saying right up front, there's going to be some constraints on what God can do. And those constraints are there because, again, God's love is uncontrolling, and God's love is expressed to everything and everyone. So the notion is that God is always working to heal, but healing requires some kind of cooperation or collaboration by creatures. And that can be both, you know, humans, uh, humans choosing to cooperate, but also a person's bodily organs or cells. 
It can even be the uh, inanimate creatures of reality, although I don't think they have, you know, free will or cooperation choices. I talk about the conditions of creation being appropriate or inappropriate for God's healing desires. And so the idea is that God is constantly always working to heal, but there are obstacles at various levels of existence. And when we're not healed, we don't have to blame God for not caring. We can say, look, you know, the conditions weren't right. Uh, These cells weren't cooperating even. Or uh, in some cases, uh, people choose not to cooperate with God's healing power, although I think that's fairly rare. I think, uh, you know, I'm not into the blaming the victim here. But the notion is God's always trying to heal, but not able to because of God being uncontrolling. All right. And then I have a question about that particular section, too. But I just want to go over these other ideas before we get into that. So number four, and this is where I said that this might come into play here a lot. So like I said, most Mormons, and I know a lot of general Christians, have a soul-building theodicy as kind of their go-to, meaning, well, this happened to me, and my character was strengthened, therefore it was by design that God wanted me to learn that specific thing, so he sent this trial to me. And I, I hear that a lot. We have what's called a fast and testimony meeting once a month, where people just get up, and instead of like the scripted things, people just go up and they bear testimony. A lot of it turns into stories and stuff, and people are feeling in their life, they're like, you know, this trial helped me become a better person. And so, and you address this in the book. So it's even weird sometimes I hear people saying, I'm thankful for the trial. But as I've gone over in the past, the thing is, the problem with soul building generals is that some people don't get better from their trial. In fact, it, like you said, there's general evils and it makes the world worse. In, it makes all things considered the world a worse place. But I like the way that you kind of laid it out in this chapter that what God does, instead of send you bad things with the hope that you'll learn from it, is that whatever does happen that happens to be bad, God can squeeze good from that bad. I just want to know if you can go into and explain what you mean by that more. Yeah, yeah, I think you've done a nice job. I mean, what most people do, I think, is look at what happened in their lives. It's past tense. And they see some positive things that have come from it. So then they, believing God is the source of all good, which I also believe, then they deduce that somehow God wanted those bad things to happen in order for these good things to happen, whether that's building their character or, you know, getting a better job or whatever. And I want to say there's something right about the notion that good can come from bad, but we should set aside the idea that God either caused or allowed the bad for some greater good or some purpose, soul building, building character, whatever. So as you've put it, uh, the my little phrase is, God squeezes good out of the evil God didn't want in the first place. And that means that people who are giving testimony and see that there's some good things that came from bad don't have to blame or credit God for the evil, but they can say that God remains with them, remains present and active in all situations, working with them and all creation to squeeze whatever good might come out of the bad God didn't want. Just one question on that as well. So in your view, and I mean, you kind of get into this in the book, but I just want to see if you can help me understand this. So I mean, for a soul building thought, I see a lot of people are saying like, this is part of God's plan for me, or it's part of God's plan somehow in general. And I just wonder, in your view, does God have a plan or is he just playing it and seeing what happens? Yeah, God does have a plan, but it's not a detailed plan. In other words, uh, when most people say, does God have a plan, what they have in mind is some kind of a a blueprint where everything's all laid out and God's got meticulously things foreknown and worked out in advance, and we're just kind of playing along with a script that's already been written. Uh, I don't think that's what we should mean when we talk about God's plan. I think we should talk about God whose plans are to prosper us, to to lead us to a good life, to build and and construct positive things, to promote well-being, to, you know, make the world a better place. All these kinds of phrases that we oftentimes use. 
But that doesn't mean that all the particular details are foreknown and preordained or predetermined by God. Yeah, and I think that works well with, like I said, Mormons and and you very strongly believe in libertarian free will. Exactly. If you have free will, then what you get out of life or what you learn is not up to God necessarily. It's up to you, unless you believe God is somehow really secretly controlling you. If it's libertarian free will, that can't be what's happening. Yep, yep. And think about, you know, you're married and you got four kids. I'm married, I've got three kids. When my wife and I got married, we had plans. Some of those plans came to fruition, others did not. Uh, there's been some things that have happened, well, a lot of things that have happened that have been unexpected. But we generally said our plan was to love one another. And that's been true. We've been faithful in that way. But the particular details, you know, we had some ideas, some hopes and dreams. Some of them came to fruition. Others did not. All right. And then the, the last one is that God needs our cooperation. And in our past podcast, we talked a lot about this on how if God can't control, then it's kind of maximally morally motivating and a very pragmatic view to say, well, then, you know, because I, I find a lot of believers in general you know, hear about bad things, you're like, oh, that's too bad. But you know what? God's going to take care of it eventually. And so, well, I feel bad about it, but I'm just not going to do anything about it. And I like how on this view and on a process view that, you know, we can't say that. It's like, no, you can't just sit there on your duff saying God's going to take care of it because that's just not the case. If we want a better world, we have to go and do it. And I think I've, I heard you mention on a past podcast that when you were teaching, your, some students really latched onto that, and some students were like, oh, oh no, I have to actually do something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. In this particular chapter, I learned something as I was writing. And I went into the chapter thinking that the main point was going to be this. The main point was going to be those people who say we shouldn't try to solve the theoretical questions of evil. Instead, we should just try to go out there and make the world a, you know, a better place, that those people are, are only half right. We do need to respond to God's activity to you know, live lives of love and make the world better. But if we think God has the kind of power that God could do it unilaterally, then uh, it kind of makes our efforts meaningless. In fact, if God is allowing horrible things to happen, we might actually be working against God's plan if we try to go in and make it better. Uh, so we need to have the view that God can't control others and can't prevent evil unilaterally, along with the view that we have a role to play in joining with God, in responding to God's call to uh, live lives of love. Makes sense. All right, so that's the basic proposals. And like, obviously, we're just skimming the surface, and you should definitely purchase the book so you can get all the details. You go into, you know, you talk a little bit about afterlife, more about prayer, and a whole lot of other stuff. But for now, if you're okay with it, I just wanted to ask kind of a couple of questions that have been weighing on my mind, probably even since I'd read The Uncontrolling Love of God, and I just never had the, the chance to talk with you one-on-one, -on -one, so... Great. Shoot. You know, forgive me if it's not the most articulate. Like I said, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm just a, I'm just a guy that likes to think about things, so... Yeah, well, you're pretty bright, so uh, go for it. All right, so, and I guess we didn't get into this too much, so I, I'll give a brief summation, but from the first point, saying that... Basically, the reason that, well, let's, I'll give a specific example. So if someone, let's say, is dying from cancer, so a lot of people be praying like, please, God, take this cancer away from me. And on your view, God can't take that cancer away because God has to sustain all of everything, I guess. And so cancer is also included in that. But what this brings up for me is I'm wondering, ultimately, love, since you, it's hard to understand how you could equally love everything. For example, if you let cancer overtake and kill someone, are you loving the cancer more than that person? Because either the cancer had to die and that person would get better, or the person will die and the cancer will win. And so when you say God is, you know, he's, he's giving his love to everything equally, 
it can't really be equal because something is going to suffer in the end. Yeah, so good question. Notice the word you used in your question, if God lets, how'd you say it, lets the cancer uh, go and I don't know exactly what, what the word you said after that, but that word let implies that God had the power to make a decision whether or not to, you know, let the cancer run its course or intervene and stop it. And you rightly point out that I don't have a God who can do that. So in the view that I'm proposing, God necessarily is acting to the utmost, providing power agency to all creation by necessity. And so with these cancer cells, God's giving their existence to them, but at the same time, acting, calling, persuading, moving in various ways, trying to get these cancerous cells to you know, change course, to become uh, whole and right again. That's part of God's action to try to heal. So if I understand your question, you seem to be presenting a false choice. The choice is that God can choose either to save the person or save the cells. And my answer is, that's not really a choice God has because God loves everyone and everything all the time. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. I, I mean, just, I guess I'm just thinking, like, I understand what your, your view is, but I'm just saying, if, is it the need to express love to the cancer that's doing it? Or is it because, well, and I'll explain a different view. You can say, if it's not that, fine. But at least on some process views, I kind of understand this analogy that God is kind of like, if, if you imagine there's, you have a computer and it has its hardware, this, it, ha, it has certain parameters and then there's software that is, at least the rules are set by the, the hardware, but God is the electricity and most people don't think of that. So God is giving rise so everything can be, but the electricity doesn't determine any of those other things. So on your view, is it kind of like that where God is imminent and he's, he's like you say, self-giving and others empowering, he's giving rise to everything. And so he, he's kind of like the power source of the entire universe, but are you saying he can't choose at, I mean, I guess you kind of are, you're saying he can't influence at any point, or not influence, but he can't have a say, I guess, in how it's going to manifest. And I guess that brings to mind more, more of this question. So when this cancer, let's say, is God just letting it happen or is he trying to stop it? And I'm wondering if he's trying to stop it, what is stopping him from, well, what's stopping him? Well, I don't know. This gets into cosmology, I guess, a little bit. So when these basic constituents of life or something are not obeying God or something like that, is is it God's intention for them to be doing exactly what they're doing? Because that's just the natural state of those things, and they're doing what they do. Or is God constantly being frustrated, saying, oh, I really, you know, I really am trying to will at these cancer cells to not kill this person, but I, they're just not obeying me. Is it that they're not obeying or that he somehow, it's not, I don't know, like I'm getting confused between, I guess, the love part where he's, I'm loving all these things. I love cancer. I can't kill it. I love George. I can't kill George. So I just have to sit back and love them all. And then whatever happens, happens. Well, I guess maybe maybe one way to understand this is to say when we talk about God loving the cancer, really probably what we should say is God loves the cells that are cancerous. And it's for the good of the cells and for George, let's say, I think he was the name you used. It's for the good of both the cells and George that the cells become non-cancerous, that they're healed, they're made whole. And so it's not the case that God sort of has a choice between the two and uh, that God's opting for the cells over uh, George. God knows that George's well-being is caught up in the cells themselves becoming non-cancerous. I, I think maybe something that you're kind of pointing to and something that I wrestle with an awful lot is the question of, in our day-to-day -day interactions, we sometimes think, it's a loving thing to do to sacrifice others for the good of the whole. So we might say, uh, look, I really hate these mosquitoes on, around our campsite. Uh, I think I'm going to put out some mosquito repellent and kill them all. 
Now, we do that without even thinking because we think, you know, it's just a nuisance to get bitten by these stupid mosquitoes. And so we kind of, in our mind, without really thinking carefully, just calculate that it's a lot better to kill all the mosquitoes than it is to have mosquito bites. And so then we transfer that way of thinking onto God and think, well, maybe God, you know, can have that kind of option on the table. Maybe God can kill some people so that the rest of us don't have to, to suffer. Or if that sounds too unloving, maybe God can kill some cells so that George doesn't have to die. And the proposal I'm laying on the table is God simply doesn't have that kind of capacity to kill those kinds of things. That because God is not only sustaining all existence, which I think you're kind of pointing to, but also this sustaining is an expression of God's love for the well-being of existence, for the well-being of those mosquitoes, those cancerous cells, for George, etc., so it's a combination of both this, the electricity of God's sustaining power or empowering um, activity in the world that makes things possible, and God's willing the well-being of all and every and every single one, those two combined that I'm proposing here. Makes sense, I suppose. So this question is kind of about the main proposal in itself, and that's about God being essentially loving. I was just kind of reading a paper just to, you know, see if there's any critiques of this type of point of view. And I came across this paper. And so let me just read a couple of these paragraphs and then we'll see if they apply here. And then we can kind of talk about how you'd overcome this. So the paper, more talking about God being essentially good, but I think being essentially love also applies. So that's a slightly different conversation, but I think it's basically the same. Go for it, yeah. So he says, I question whether it makes any sense to call a being good that cannot conceivably do wrong in a morally significant sense. And so we could say the same thing about love. And a being that cannot say no to a relationship, that must love without having a choice about it, cannot love in a fully interpersonal sense with the most valuable kind of love. If God is an essentially perfectly good being, then it is necessary that God loves. God has no choice but to love and cannot choose not to love us. But interpersonal love cannot be necessitated in this sense. Love is a choice by its very nature. A being that has no choice but to love cannot love with the exalted kind of interpersonal love expressed by God in the scriptures. Thus, the notion of an essentially perfectly good being or, an essential, or a perfectly loving being are logically incompatible. And then there's just one quick example. I know, sorry, that's kind of long. <laughs> So I said, for example, if I had a girlfriend and she had a tumor in her brain that affected her brain so that it caused her to love me, would that really be love? Because it's not her that's choosing to love. It's, you know, something not necessarily outside of her, but her nature, if you will. The author goes on to talk about kind of his relationship with his wife and why it's wonderful. He says, what is wonderful in the relationship with my wife is that she is free to choose to end the relationship at any time, but freely chooses to love me and remain faithful to me. Such freely given love is more valuable to me than any love that would be impossible for her to refrain from giving. It means that her love for me is a choice, an expression of who she is and what she chooses to give. So I guess, you know, you can tell my question is, by love's very nature, doesn't it have to be a choice? I think that's the way we typically think of love uh, because, of course, the e examples we have in our, in our lives are that there's no such thing as a creature whose nature is love or essential love, like I want to say it's true of God. So this is a way in which I'm suggesting God is transcendent from creatures in that God necessarily loves. God must love because it's God's nature. Um, I do think God has free will in choices how to love. So uh, you and I have a choice whether or not we're going to love our spouse and a free choice in how we're going to love our spouse. But God doesn't have a choice on whether to love others, but does have a choice in how to love others. And that's part of the importance of uh, the openness view of God's relation to time, which I won't get into here. But um, what that article is suggesting is that that person's fundamental intuition is 
that love itself must be free in all respects. And I don't have that intuition. I think that uh, there is a being whose nature is love, who loves necessarily. And I suppose what I would ask the person who wrote that question is I would ask this, uh, I would say to them, why do you think your wife loves you? And if he says something like, well, you know, that's just who she is. Uh, I would say, well, that sounds kind of like you're saying it's her nature to love you. And if it's her nature to love you, she really doesn't have a choice. But if he says to me, well, I don't know, she just chooses to love me time and time again. She just continues to choose to love me. There's no real reason for this. It's just a free choice. Then I would say to that person, well, you really shouldn't have any confidence that she is going to continue to love you because there's no real confidence one has that our free choices are going to continue on any particular path. In fact, you shouldn't be very confident she's always loved you in the past. There may be some times in which she hasn't and you really haven't known. Or to put it in a summary statement, the major advantage or one of the major advantages of saying that God necessarily loves us is that we can be confident that God will never forsake us, never leave us, never abandon us, never stop loving us, because that's who God is by nature. Okay, and we don't have to get into this, I guess, too much, but I, he did go into the article and say, because it, you know, it's about God's love, and say, well, and he brought up your possible objections, and like, oh, well, you know, then it's possible that God might fail to love us, and who wants to say that? Like, well, perhaps... I mean, it's logically possible that God could fail to love us, but at least the way that God is expressed in, in Scripture is because, the re, you know, the reason we, for example, trust God, or the Hebrews did, is because he proved time and time again his character. And as, you know, it says in the Bible, like, his, God is unchanging. And, you know, we, and you probably shared the interpretation. That doesn't mean that God can't literally change, but that his character is not necessarily essentially unchanging, but it's you know, he's he's so trustworthy and changing. That's why it's morally praiseworthy that God is good, not because he has to be. For example, uh, I don't praise a lamppost for being tall and shining a light just because that has nothing. It's just, you know, that, that's its nature to be that, but it's not a morally praiseworthy thing. Whereas, I mean, that's dumb because it's a physical characteristic, but I mean, you kind of get what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Yeah. So then the question because would turn to, should we praise God for being loving if God loves by necessity? And uh, I want to say I have no problem expressing praise and thanks to God in choosing to love me in the particular ways. I also don't have any problem praising God for the fact that God is loving. Here I'm not so much saying, boy, I'm sure glad you love me when you could have chose not to love me. I'm still more standing in awe that God is the kind of being who loves by necessity. Uh, so it's a little bit different kind of praise there as uh, than one would have if God, if they thought God could choose otherwise. Okay, well that's fine. That's uh, you know that's as far as I want to get into that. But I just want to give you kind of a a couple minutes in it if you would. So you know we've gone briefly over this, and so you know if you want to, like I said, if you want to get more into it, you should definitely read the book. But what are some common objections that you think come up to your view that you could probably, in a short amount of time, explain your view and how it might not play out the way that some people have probably brought up to you many, many times? Because I'm sure people bring up objections to you all the time in your own tradition, as well as wherever you go. Like, well, what about this? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of them, I'll mention three quickly. One is people say, well, that's just not the God of the Bible. And by that, they mean the way they read the Bible, they think the God expressed there or depicted there sometimes at least controls others. And I like to say, you know, I can't find a single passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God controlled creatures such that there was no creaturely contribution. Um, I think that's true of the phrase of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We've just interpreted that as God, you know, took away Pharaoh's free will. Uh, but that doesn't, a lot of biblical scholars say we don't have to have that interpretation. Or some people will say, well, what about the creation of the world? And here I think Mormon theology is particularly helpful because it uh, denies creation out of nothing. And I deny that as well. 
or you know, they'll they'll look at a particular passage of scripture and they'll say, well, right there it says that God did this, as if you have to interpret it as meaning that God alone was acting in that situation, and there was no creaturely contribution. But we all the time talk about people doing things, but know that there were other actors or factors involved in them. So that's one thing. A second one, and I suppose closely related to it, is the question of miracles. And we've kind of touched on this in terms of healing. But um, I don't think there are any miracle stories in the Bible that require God to single-handedly control things. But probably the one that comes up most often is the question of eschatology. Look, if you've got a God who can't control others, then, you know, how are things going to end up? Uh, God can't guarantee this, uh, you know, final victory. God can't guarantee the end will come out right. And I address that particular question in this new book by talking about some of the guarantees my perspective does provide. My perspective, you know, guarantees that God will always love. It guarantees that God never gives up. It guarantees that those of us who say yes to God enjoy abundant life. But it is true that my view doesn't say God guarantees that all creation will one day be redeemed if by guarantee we mean that God alone can make this happen. And uh, so that's just one of the things my view leads to. I don't find it troubling, but I do hear some people say that it troubles them, that we can't guarantee that God's either going to kick everybody's butt at the end or, you know, guarantee that everyone goes to heaven even if they don't want to. Yeah, some of those, like you said, it depends on your temperament, I suppose. But I think that, I'll be honest, I I don't know if I can say I prescribe only to this view, but now now that I've taken kind of a faith journey in the last few years of being more like a straight, orthodox person to understanding a lot more views, and so now I have a a range of different views that I remain open to, and this is up there. I keep coming back time and time again to, to this view, and so... It's it's very helpful for me, and that's one thing is, and I'm sure that's why you came up with it. But for a lot of the views, you know, people say it, and like maybe it makes them feel good, or it it makes God seem awesome, but it doesn't really help the individual. And this book is is very helpful for individuals to not only find the healing that they're looking for, but kind of be empowered, especially the last section, be like, you know, God needs you. You know, you're part of if you want to say. You know, you're part of God's plan, or you want to find your place, your purpose in life. God is providing you that in that if you listen, He will guide you to, you know, the the ultimate good that you can achieve with your, your life. And so, you know, I find that very motivating and helpful. Good, yeah, so do I. I mean, I think the view that I present, even my critics will say it's intellectually satisfying. It, it's coherent. And they'll say, they'll admit that it fits with the way life seems to work. Now, some of the objections they'll have is that it doesn't square with some of the ways that they have long thought Christian theology ought to you know, be. And I readily admit I'm criticizing some traditional or conventional views. But it matters a lot to me to have a view of God and reality that makes sense of the way the world seems to work and is intellectually coherent. All right, Tom, I am so thankful that you were willing to come on this podcast and talk about these ideas. And again, I I really appreciate what you're doing, and I do find it helpful. And like you, I think throughout different parts of my life, I've, I've gone from, you know, kind of extreme believer that wants to proselytize everything to yeah. pretty much an atheist on certain days and being like, you know, this, like I said, I keep coming back to this view over and over again because, like you said, it coheres very well with a lived experience and the way that the world actually is. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, Corey. I, I think this book can be helpful to a wide variety of people uh, because, as you mentioned earlier, I, I tried to write it so a lot of people could understand it. And it's my hope that those people who've been hurt in some way or who have 
major questions about theology or whether or not there's a God, or, uh, and obviously why God doesn't prevent suffering and evil. I hope this book can be a major resource and if not helping them to understand God's love, at least opening them up to the possibility of a loving God who exists in this world and calls us to a relationship. All right, wonderful. So yeah, again, listeners, I urge you to go out and pick up a copy of God Can't. And also, I highly recommend the book before this, The Uncontrolling Love of God, both by our guest, Thomas J. Ord. So thanks again, Tom. Thank you, Corey.